Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. 500 civils massés le long de la frontière risquent d'un jour à l'autre d'être repoussés. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. Since Médecins Sans Frontières was formed in 1971, the organization has provided medical aid to people in need in many incredibly difficult situations. Our staff have often been eyewitnesses to all kinds of abuses. They've seen the consequences of political power games on people's lives, and sometimes the deadly inaction of the international community. Like during the forced transfer of the population in Ethiopia in the 1980s, the genocide of Rwandan Tutsi in the 90s, or the indiscriminate bombings of civilians in Chechnya in the late 90s, early 2000s. These were all complex, highly charged, and often dangerous situations for everyone involved. And so, speaking out posed a dilemma for MSF. It meant taking a risk. So what does lead MSF to speak out as a medical humanitarian organization? Bearing witness can't be reduced to a set of guidelines. Every crisis is different. So, MSF created the Speaking Out Case Studies series. This international project, written and directed by Laurence Binet, focuses on crises in which speaking out raised difficult questions within MSF. In this podcast series, we're going to be looking in-depth at one of those crises, the siege and subsequent massacre that took place in Srebrenica during the Bosnian War of the 1990s. The context of the war in former Yugoslavia, and more specifically the fall of Srebrenica, raised difficult questions for MSF. By providing medical aid to a besieged population, was MSF contributing, like prison doctors, to the strategy of the besieging Serbian troops, and also perhaps softening their image? On the other hand, should MSF have called for the evacuation of the civilians who wanted to leave? And if so, would it have abetted the ethnic cleansing policy of the besieging army? Should MSF have trusted the ability of the UN Protection Forces to protect civilians? Is it the role of a humanitarian medical organisation to issue an appeal for an investigative parliamentary commission, then, once it's established, to actively monitor it with a critical eye? My name is Nick Owen and I'm from MSF. Over the next five episodes, I'll be taking you through the events in Srebrenica as they unfolded. I'll present the elements that created the debates within MSF and the crucial decisions that had to be made. Together, we'll hear eyewitness testimonies from MSF staff in the field and at headquarters and examine the press releases, internal reports, speeches and news articles of the time. Through them, we'll review a moment in the history of Bosnia and MSF. Many of you will have heard of Srebrenica. The city's name has become synonymous with one of the worst events of the Bosnian War. From 1993, when Bosnian Serb forces besieged the town, MSF was the only non-governmental humanitarian organization working inside the enclave. The fact that we had almost nothing on shelves, we had no fuel, we could not even sustain our own team inside. So that was a message that we were given that, you know, get out of here. In July 95, 
our staff witnessed the seizure of this majority Muslim city and the detention and separation of men over the age of 16. I heard executions in the evening. I heard about a house where men were being guarded. Everybody should see the violence on the faces of the Bosnian Serb army, directing the people like animals to the buses. We have organized a sufficient number of cars and lorries and you'll be transferred to Kladaj, to Muslim territory. Later, there were rumors of mass killings and thousands of people were missing, including MSF staff. There were enough stories to give me the impression that we witness here a systematic elimination of the men. Today, around 8,000 people are known to have been killed in and around Srebrenica by Bosnian Serb forces. All this despite the presence of United Nations peacekeeping forces in this so-called safe zone. For a decade, MSF called on the countries involved to hold inquiries to establish where military and political responsibility lay for the enclave's fall and the abandonment of its people. It is our question, and also the question of the people of Srebrenica, who was responsible, because until today we don't know. In this series, we'll examine the times MSF was trying to push the international agenda towards action and analyse the points when some of the team felt we could and should have done things differently. This is Médecins Sans Frontières speaking out, Srebrenica. Episode 1, Entering the Enclave. First, a bit of background to the crisis in the Balkans in the early 90s. In 1991, the former Yugoslavia is dismantled after a series of political and economic crises. One of the new countries to come out of the breakup is Bosnia-Herzegovina. The three largest ethnic groups living there are the Serbs, the Croats and the Bosnian Muslims, or Bosniaks. Much of Western Bosnia-Herzegovina is taken over by Bosnia's Serb forces. They want to push the Bosnian Muslims out of the region and secure the territory for the ethnic Serbs. Their half of the country, or their entity as it's known, later becomes known as Republika Srpska. Cities in the western half of the country, with majority Muslim populations like Sarajevo, Gorazde and Srebrenica, are turned into enclaves. At the start of the war in 1992, Srebrenica is a mountain town of around 8,000 people, but as Muslims from surrounding villages are forced to flee their homes and seek refuge in the city, the population eventually swells to 40,000. The people in Srebrenica are living under siege and constant attack from the Bosnian Serb forces, who are controlling everything and everyone allowed into and out of the enclave. The French newspaper Le Monde and Reuters Newswire in the UK reports an aid convoy sent by the United Nations successfully reached the besieged Muslim town of Srebrenica in Bosnia on Saturday 28th of November 1992 after being blocked for three days by Serbian forces. The UN had already made two vain attempts to bring new supplies to the town, which had been cut off from the rest of the world since the civil war started in April. According to heads at the UNHCR, the people were living in conditions verging on famine, the hospitals had to treat the injured without the use of drugs or anaesthesia. That convoy is the only one allowed into Srebrenica that winter. In February 1993, 
the UN High Commissioner for Refugees took a drastic step and suspended all operations in the region. They admit that the United Nations Protection Forces, or UMPRAFOR for short, haven't been able to get relief aid into Bosnia-Herzegovina. A French general named Philippe Morillon is the leader of UMPRAFOR. He's in charge of protecting these aid convoys, but is frustrated by the Bosnian Serbs blocking aid. As are MSF Belgium. They're the main MSF team in the former Yugoslavia right now, and their medical equipment is constantly being confiscated by the Bosnian Serb forces. They put out a press release rejecting the UNHCR's decision. Médecins Sans Frontières will continue to distribute emergency aid in Bosnia from its logistical bases in the former Yugoslavia. In doing so, MSF is ignoring the call, declared on Wednesday by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, to stop all humanitarian operations in Bosnia. Although not deliberately distancing itself from the best intentions of the UNHCR's announcement, which was made in recognition of the total disregard for human rights by the various parties to the conflict, Médecins Sans Frontières believes that mass efforts to aid the Bosnian civilian population are more necessary than ever. It's early March 1993, and the situation in Srebrenica is deteriorating. Deep snow fills the surrounding mountains, and in the enclave, supplies are running dangerously low, and people are going without. This makes MSF's Belgian team even more determined to get supplies into Srebrenica. Dr. Georges Dalmagne is MSF Belgium's Director of Operations. I was called from Brussels by the head of mission, Dr. Eric Dashi, who told me, Georges, come to Zvonik on the river Drina. We may have a chance to pass through to get into Srebrenica. Come with me and I'll get there. We were in a small hotel on the river Drina, where there was a very strange and astonishing atmosphere. There were UN officials, Serbian forces and Serbian militias and we would meet every night in this large dining room. The Serbian soldiers who came to dine there were in an especially good mood as they were in the middle of an offensive. It was quite a shocking atmosphere, in fact, when you knew what drama was going on a few miles away. Finally, on the 11th of March, after days of negotiations and waiting, the Bosnian-Serbian forces allow one of General Morion's Umprafor convoys entry into Srebrenica. MSF Belgium decides to join it. After nearly a year of constant shelling by the Bosnian Serbs, the scene inside the enclave is understandably grim. For Dr. Georges Dalmagne, it's a scene from hell. It was dark and it was cold. There was snow and you could see these refugees coming from all over the forest, screaming, crying. There were women carrying their children in wheelbarrows, in pyjamas. You could see that they had had to flee the offensive very quickly, and people were trying to find shelter and warmth. They were burning plastic crates and that sort of thing to try to keep warm. We as the MSF team went straight to the hospital and let the UN team go to the abandoned post office where they set up their headquarters. At the hospital, we discovered a terrifying situation with wounded people and blood everywhere. I'll always remember two little girls, their legs crushed, shattered by shells. We spoke to the medical team, and then we went to get Morion so that he could see the patients at the hospital. 
and so we tried to do what we could. We helped the surgeon treat the wounded. Well, we're not surgeons, so we tied bandages, we tried to organize the hospital, and we all spent the rest of the night there. Once inside, the people in Srebrenica refused to let the MSF Belgian team, or General Morion, leave. Many feel that the international presence will act as a potential guarantee against more attacks from the Bosnian Serbs. I remember very well that Morion was sleeping on some chairs and I was sleeping on the floor right next to him. It was a very small room. And around one or two o'clock in the morning, he got up and told us that he was leaving as he wanted to respect his promise to the Serbs. Then we saw him come back around six, seven o'clock in the morning. He had spent five hours hiding behind a column, probably 50 meters from the post office. Obviously, it was impossible for him to leave the village, but it was also impossible for him to go into the forests, as that road went for miles through a war zone. He went back to sleep, and when he woke up in the early afternoon, he said he was going to stay. On the 13th of March, General Morion stands on the balcony of the post office building in Srebrenica and demands an end to the Serb offensive. He calls for the application of ceasefires, the establishment of relief corridors to Srebrenica, and the deployment of observers from the UN. He finishes his speech in faltering Serbo-Croat, speaking directly to people in Srebrenica, saying, don't worry, I'll stay with you. Instead of being the victim, he preferred to reverse the situation, which, in my opinion, was something extremely important, ultimately, on a political level and also on a humanitarian level. We went back to the hospital again, organized the pharmacy, sorted the drugs, but we absolutely needed a surgical team. And so quite quickly, the Bosniak forces, following this willingness of Morio and his promises to protect the enclave, finally authorized our departure to Drina. From there, we were able to organize much more substantial aid to help the enclave. The next day, Dr. Georges d'Allemagne and the MSF exploratory team leave the enclave. They prepare to tell the world what they've witnessed in Srebrenica and call for urgent action. As bombing from the Bosnian Serb forces intensifies, MSF holds a press conference in Brussels to describe the reality of the situation in the enclave. Dr. Georges d'Allemagne leads it. It's true that it was an exceptional press conference. I arrived and the conference room was full. There were reporters there from all over the world because there was very little evidence of what was going on inside the enclave. It was a very, very serious, very important episode. And so I simply told the horrors I had seen on the spot, the distress of those people. I had the feeling that until then, we had mainly sent high-protein biscuits and medicines and that we'd never really had the courage and the audacity to really protect these people, to stop this war. So for me, it was important to say that we had to protect these people and that we also had to be able to help them. On the 20th of March, a surgeon from MSF Belgium manages to get into Srebrenica. A week later, he's joined by an anaesthetist, a doctor, a GP and a health logistician. Speaking to the French daily newspaper Le Monde after his return, the surgeon only adds to the terrible picture painted in Srebrenica's school, as big as a secondary school back home, the refugees are piled in. 
80 to 100 per classroom, in catastrophic health conditions. One of the most tragic images that the doctor can't forget is a baby with its stomach torn open by a shell. It died in the arms of one of the Canadian blue helmets. The infant was injured on Wednesday the 24th of March, at the time when the blue helmets were carrying out an evacuation of inhabitants by helicopter, an operation that had to be cancelled since the Serbs were targeting the landing strip. We were worried that the MSF and UNPROFOR teams will be kept as safeguards by the Muslims. The relief workers are very uneasy, because if the women and children are evacuated, only the men remain. And then we won't be able to do anything more to save the town. On the 28th of March 1993, a new ceasefire is signed. Over the next few days, two relief convoys enter the enclave, bringing supplies. They leave with over 5,000 evacuees, mainly women and children. Military observers from the UN are also deployed, and the United Nations Security Council extends UNPROFOR's mandate to the end of June. The situation is tense. Le Monde reports that these moves anger the Bosnian Serb military leaders, who say that General Morion has abused his position and that UNPROFOR is biased in the crisis. In an article published in the Yugoslav Army's official journal, the Bosnian Serbs accuse the French general of going to Srebrenica to feed and arm the Muslims. On April 6th, UNHCR announces they want to evacuate up to 15,000 more civilians from Srebrenica. Many observers, including MSF, worry that a move like this will only encourage more ethnic cleansing by the Serbian forces. The next day, MSF publicly warns that the enclave is on the point of collapse. They call for reinforcements for the various UN teams in the city to both help the people trapped there and also to avoid large-scale abuses if Srebrenica is taken. After the relative calm of the ceasefire, the bombing intensifies again on the 12th of April. Around 100 seriously injured people arrive at the already overcrowded hospital where MSF is supporting local medical staff. Arne Zulens is head of the MSF Belgian team there. He speaks to Agence France Presse and the Belgian daily newspaper Le Soir. We can't go out unless we have an armoured vehicle, and even then only for a short while. Before these bombardments, which the UN reported 57 deaths and 100 injured, all the refugees were sleeping in the streets. Since then, everyone has been trying to find shelter wherever they can, most often in the basement of houses. The population is terrorised. The bombings are less intense than last Monday, but continue. The Bosnian-Serbian forces are some two kilometres from the town, and, in theory, nothing stands in their way of capturing the town. As the bombing escalates further, Arns and some of the other members of the MSF team manage to get out of Srebrenica in an empty UNHCR convoy. It's empty because the Bosnian Muslim authorities are refusing to allow any refugees out until their own injured soldiers, who have been fighting the Serbs inside the enclave, are evacuated. A flash visit by a UN delegation to the enclave on the 25th of April prompts another press release from MSF, in which they say Srebrenica has become a health bomb. Every MSF team to make it into the enclave stresses the importance of clean water. By the spring of 1993, 
Each person is rationed to just three litres of water a day, instead of the minimum 20 needed to avoid an epidemic. As life inside the enclave worsens, the international community attempts to step in and put pressure on the Serbs to respect the UN's peace plan. The United States threatens to lift the arms embargo on the Bosnian Muslims. Serbia and Montenegro declare an economic embargo against the Bosnian Serbs. Then, on the 8th of May, Umprafor commander General Morion manages to broker another ceasefire agreement after 30 hours of negotiations. The UN Security Council adds more enclaves to the list of safe zones under Umprafor protection. Now, the list includes Sarajevo, Tuzla, Zepa, Gorazde, and Biac. In Srebrenica, the demilitarized zone is expanded. The 340 Canadian Umprafor soldiers, or the Blue Helmets as the peacekeepers are known, have their mandate extended in the city for protection. On the 15th of May, the president of MSF France, Ronnie Broman, flags the organization's unease about using humanitarian aid as an alibi for political inertia in Bosnia-Herzegovina in his annual report. All through the year, we have dilly-dallied regarding our engagement in Bosnia. Such dithering is due both to the significant effective presence of MSF's Dutch and Belgian sections in both Croatia and Serbia, as well as, and we mustn't hide it, to the malaise that we have experienced with regard to the use of humanitarian action in Bosnia. I simply want to mention that, at this very moment, a Belgian team of five MSF workers is knuckling down to work in Srebrenica, and we hope that other missions are underway. If MSF is in Srebrenica, regardless of the judgment we cast on the use of humanitarian action in Bosnia, it is indisputable that MSF fulfills its role, that this is our mission, and that we need to accomplish it. Three days later, MSF France issues a press release. Debates at the General Assembly on the relationship between humanitarian action and politics have highlighted the indignation of all regarding the use of humanitarian action in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Refusing to outlaw ethnic cleansing and its attendant woes when there was still time, the European nations have merely contented themselves with accompanying relief convoys. While reiterating how essential the aid is, due to the deteriorating situation on the ground, the MSF General Assembly firmly condemned the humanitarian reasons given for the political renunciation in Bosnia. By now, the French section of MSF has invited the Belgians to set up a joint mission in the former Yugoslavia, and in June 1993, the two teams start to manage programmes in the enclaves of Srebrenica and Gorazde. That same month, MSF opens an office in the city of Palais, where the Bosnian Serb authorities have their headquarters. MSF hopes that being around the corner from those running Republika Srpska will help them make inroads with the Serb authorities and get more aid convoys into Srebrenica and the other enclaves. On 4th of June, the UN Security Council adopts Resolution 836. This allows Umprafor to retaliate if there's any aggression against the six Muslim enclaves declared protected areas. It also, importantly, allows the use of airstrikes. Over the summer of 1993, a succession of negotiations, military advances, NATO airstrikes and stricter embargoes makes life unbearable in the enclaves. A letter from the MSF general coordinator in the former Yugoslavia to the UNHCR special envoy in early September states, Despite many promises, 
only wheat flour is arriving. Essentials for the winter such as salt, repair materials, cement for the water system, clothing and shoes are still just promises. The tension and anxiety of the population is growing. Their survival is entirely dependent on the timely arrival of international aid. This aid is dependent on the goodwill of the Serbian authorities in Pale and the UN Sanctions Committee in New York. The long waits for UN approval is seen by many to exacerbate the situation. An editorial in Le Monde that same month describes the UN as a place where failing political action is a substitute for humanitarian action. With winter closing in, MSF is worried about how the thousands of people imprisoned in Srebrenica will survive. Next time on MSF Speaking Out, Srebrenica. MSF is still the only source of medical care in the enclave, but its job is being made harder and harder as the Bosnian Serbs tighten the siege on Srebrenica. The people inside the enclave were stuck with a sense of despair. And I think back in Palais, the purpose was to put the population under an extreme pressure, but not to the point of creating an, an epidemic, an outbreak or a famine. The organization starts to question its role there and wonder if it's contributing to the Bosnian Serb strategy, acting like prison doctors. And as the Dutch take over from the Canadian Blue Helmets, MSF teams in the region start to wonder just how much UNPROFOR are actually able to protect the enclaves. The MSF Speaking Out Srebrenica podcast is based on an original MSF study called MSF and Srebrenica 1993-2003, written by Laurence Binet. It's part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Martin Solinier, and Sandy McKee. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Daniela Bellos-Stag and Matthew Wade. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Dr. Georges Dallemagne. To read the full report and discover other case studies, please go to our website, msf.org speakingout. Thanks for listening.